The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Well, let's get ready for our study of God's Word this morning. We need to to take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship and ready for the study of God's Word through the use of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse or purify us from all unrighteousness. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege to gather together as a body of believers this morning to fellowship around the study of your word, the teaching of your word, because this is, this is our meal, our spiritual meal, where we take in the nourishment for our souls, for our spiritual life. It is your word that has power and authority, Father. So we dedicate this time each week to uh, devote ourselves to listening to you through the teaching of the word. Pray that we can uh, understand this, have the objectivity to see how it applies to our lives under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are studying one of the most important metaphors in Scripture for understanding the entire spiritual life. How a believer grows from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. Real life in the spiritual life doesn't begin until we begin to get some spiritual maturity under our belt, the same way that it happens in, in life. We don't, uh, the goal of life, if you talk to any 10 or 12 year old, is to be treated like an adult and to live like an adult. They recognize that. The same thing's true in the spiritual life, and yet I'm amazed at how many believers I run into that seem to just be happy with the fact that they're going to go to heaven and have no concept of what it means to really grow or advance to spiritual maturity so that you can really begin to live and operate and benefit from all of the incredible assets that God has given us for living the spiritual life. And I'm amazed how many pastors don't understand this and don't teach it as well. And it's not easy to try to tear apart some of these Scripture passages and to understand how these things work together and what the dynamics are. And so we're taking some time in our study of Galatians to really get a handle on this subject in Galatians 5, starting in verse 16, which is the spiritual walk. Walking by means of the Spirit is the command at the beginning of Galatians 5.16, and this is a present active imperative, which means that this is to be the standard operating procedure for the believer's life. Sometimes people get the idea that the key issue in the spiritual life is rebound. Well, I think that you get that idea when you're a young believer that the key issue is confession and forgiveness because you're living out of fellowship so much and carnality tends to be the rule of the day for the uh, baby believer that you're just so glad you have confession that you can uh, get back in fellowship. And, of course, five minutes later you need to use it again. So, so we're all thankful for that. But that is not 
the goal of the spiritual life is to make sure you're in fellowship. The goal of the spiritual life, according to this passage in Galatians 5, is to maintain that fellowship. And that is under the metaphor of walking by means of the Spirit. It is that step-by-step, day-by-day, moment-by-moment dependence upon God the Holy Spirit as the energizing power and enabler in the spiritual life. So we're taking a look at all of the passages related to walking. Now I want to review a couple of things. We started off saying that this related to the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification comes from, is based on the Greek word hagias, hagiasmas, which means to be set apart from the verb hagiazo. And sanctification is used in three senses in the Scripture, and we need to keep these distinctions. The, the phase one, phase two, phase three concept is so important for understanding different aspects of the spiritual life. We're saved from the penalty of sin in phase one. That is also called positional sanctification because at the moment of faith alone, in Christ alone, we are identified with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And according to Romans 6, 1 through 4, we are indeed positionally separated from the power of the sin nature, which leads into, which is the basis for phase two, that we are no longer slaves to the sin nature. That means that as a believer, you now have the option of not living under the power of the sin nature. As an unbeliever, every unbeliever lives under the power of the sin nature. They have no other option. They are either producing from the area of weakness in terms of sin, personal sin, overt sin, sins of the tongue, mental attitude sins, or they are producing from the area of strength in terms of human good. But they can only produce from the sin nature because there is no other option. No matter how moral they are, no matter how establishment-oriented they are, no matter how wonderful they are, what nice personalities they might have, no matter how much fun they might be to be around, they're still operating exclusively from the sin nature and they have no other option. As a believer, you have an option. And the mandate is not to exercise the option of living under the power of the sin nature. And it is not until phase three that we are saved from the presence of the sin nature. And this is called uh, ultimate sanctification. So we have three phases of sanctification. We have positional sanctification in phase one. Phase two is experiential or progressive sanctification. Sometimes we wonder how progressive that is in our lives. But ultimately, when we're face-to-face with the Lord, we have ultimate sanctification. Then we saw that the metaphor for walking operates on a couple of different principles in terms of Greek grammar. They are expressed by the preposition in, E-N in the Greek, and the grammatical category is that the uh, N takes a dative of sphere. And another word to, that may help you understand this is realm. This means we are to walk in the realm, in a certain realm. And there are various passages that talk about the realm in which the believer is supposed to walk. We're to walk in the realm or in the sphere of light not in darkness. This is covered in Romans 13, 13, Ephesians 5, 8, 1 John 1, 6. We are not to walk in the realm or in the sphere of darkness. We're to walk in newness of life, in the sphere of this new life that we have as a result of our identification with Christ. All of these spheres, terms, N plus the dative of sphere, relate to the top circle. This is our positional reality. 
or excuse me, the walking is experiential. It's the bottom circle here, which is walking in the sphere, and this is described by these various categories that are all based upon the ultimate reality of the top circle, which is our positional reality. We are to walk in the sphere of love. We are to walk in the sphere or realm of good works. We are to walk in the sphere of wisdom. We are to walk in the sphere or realm of truth. Another way in which this same Greek preposition is used is to indicate the instrument or means by which this walk is accomplished. And there we have two. It's by means of faith. Faith is directed towards the Word of God. Faith is not faith in itself. Faith is, is the trust, the application of, of reliance upon the principles and the promises of the Word of God known as Bible doctrine. 2 Corinthians 5.7, we are to walk by means of faith and not by means of sight. And Galatians 5.16 and 25, we are to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. And then there's another Greek preposition. Now, when I emphasize this, I had a Greek professor used to say that the most important words in the Greek were the prepositions and the particles, because that gives you the flow and a lot of other very crucial information in the Scriptures. Now, kata indicates a norm or standard, which is to govern the believer's life. So this is very similar to the concept of realm. We are to walk according to the norm or standard of the Holy Spirit, walk according to the norm or standard of love, and not according to the norms and standards of the sin nature. Now, the basis for the believer's walk, as we saw last time in our study of Romans chapter 6, the basis is our positional identification with Jesus Christ, and we covered that in Romans 6, 1 through 4. And then point 5, and I have not gone through the introduction summary here in terms of the basic points. I've just summarized them for you. If you weren't here, get the tape. Point number five goes to Ephesians 5.8, that the believer is to walk in the sphere of light. What exactly does that mean? And we began to look at that last week, and this is crucial to understand, and I want to summarize it and review it again because it's so important to understand where we're going. We didn't quite get there last time. I spent the most of the hour setting us up for understanding 1 John 1, and then when we got there, we ran out of time. So I need to go back and bring you back to that position in terms of a reminder. Ephesians 5.8 says, You were formerly darkness. And there we have the imperfect tense. You were continuously in your former life as an unbeliever, Darkness. So this is talking about the fact that as unbelievers, we are born in darkness and we live in darkness. This is our position. This is so important to understand. If we don't understand the distinctions between positional realities and experiential realities, we're going to get very confused when we get into some passages of Scripture. That's why I am belaboring the point. Because I know and I have friends and I had seminary classmates who confuse the two continuously. So we have to make sure we, we make this distinction and see that the Scriptures make the distinction. That's the important thing, is what does the Scripture say? You were formerly darkness, but now, now in this present life, you are light in the Lord. And there we have a shift in, we don't have a, um, a verb here, it is ellipsized, but the emphasis is on the present reality. You are light in the Lord, walk Present active imperative, walk as 
children of light. Now, this is our identification because of our, our sonship in Christ. We are children of light, and we are commanded to walk like that. Well, that seems to imply that you can take the option not to walk as a child of light, doesn't it? seems to imply you can take the option to walk as a child of darkness, and we need to see if that is true. Now, light represents absolute perfection in the Scripture. It represents the holiness of God. And we saw last time that in 1 Timothy 6.16, we're told that God dwells in unapproachable light. And in 1 John 1.5, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Now, when we look at what the Scripture describes of what happens to us at salvation... We're told that we become sons of light. And this phrase is a Hebraism. A Hebraism is a Hebrew idiom that is brought over into the Greek. Sons of light. Now, in Hebrew, if you were describing someone's character, and you would use a phrase, they were the son of something. So if they were a, a deceitful person, you would say that they were a son of deception. If they were a, an encouraging person as Barnabas was, you would call them a son of encouragement. If they were an honest person, they would be a son of honesty. So you see, it doesn't indicate derivation. The emphasis is on the uh, final noun in the phrase, the object of the preposition, because that describes the character of the person. If someone was a, was a, a destructive person, or if you were going to um, uh, indicate the uh, perversion of their character, they were a uh, son of Belial. That's the biblical version of an SOB. Just wanted to see if anybody was listening this morning. A son of Belial. We have to be biblical here. Okay, now that I woke everybody up this morning, I know it's early. Okay, John 12:36. Jesus says, While you have the light, believe in the light. He's referring to himself as absolute perfection. It's absolute righteousness. In order that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he departed. Now, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and at that moment we become a son of light. We are transferred positionally into light according to 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once again, it's positional. We have been called from one status, darkness, into another status, light. Acts 26:18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. This is a salvation context. So it is talking about moving from one realm to another realm in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And then Colossians 1.13, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So we are born over here in the domain of darkness, and at the moment of salvation we are transferred into the kingdom of light where we receive the title Sons of Light. But that doesn't mean we live consistent with that position. That becomes clear from looking at Romans 13:12. Romans 13:12, Paul says, "The night is almost gone." That's a reference to the uh, imminency of the rapture. He thought it would be at any moment that Christ would come back. So he says, "The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand." 
Let us therefore conclusion, if the Lord could come back at any moment, then we ought to change the way we live. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. What's the implication there? The implication is that we're still producing the deeds of darkness and there needs to be a transformation. Let's look at this in a little more detail. Paul says, let us lay aside, and here we have the uh, aorist middle subjunctive of the verb apotithemi. A-P-O-T-I-T-H-E-M-I. Now, this word is used sometimes as removing clothing. It means to put away, to put out of the way, to remove, to take off. So the, the imagery here is of someone changing clothes, taking off one set of clothes and putting on a set of armor. It is in the subjunctive mood. Here, remember, the subjunctive mood is the mood of potentiality. And it is sometimes used in certain constructions to emphasize a certain type of command, and this is called a hortatory subjunctive. A hortatory refers to the fact that it is an exhortation. Here's your root word here. It is an exhortation or a mandate, and the subjunctive mood is used in order to emphasize it's a potential. And that potential is going to be activated by your volition. And it determines, and your volition is what determines whether or not this action takes place. God is not going to make the decisions for you. The Holy Spirit is not going to override your volition. You have to make decisions regarding the application of doctrine in your life. It's not just automatic. It is not the old Keswick phrase, let go and let God. The Christian life is not a passive life. It is an active life in terms of your volition. It is passive in the sense that you are going to allow God to work in your life, but you have to make certain decisions and applications. It is not that God is going to override that. So that is the emphasis of the subjunctive, and it functions as an imperative. The middle voice indicates that the believer participates in the results of the action. He not only uh, is the performer of the action, but he participates in the results of it. Now, remember, in English, you have two voices. You have an active voice and a passive voice. Active means the subject performs the action. In the passive voice, the subject receives the action. In Greek, you have something quite different. You have a middle voice, which means the subject not only performs the action, but benefits from the results of the action. Sometimes it's called a reflexive voice. It doesn't always have that implication, but that is its primary implication. So the middle voice here indicates that not only do you make the decision to take off, remove the deeds of darkness, but you benefit from the results of removing the deeds of darkness. Now, this word is used in a number of places, some of which we have already studied, and is in some sense tantamount to the whole concept of confession, but it moves beyond confession to uh, post-confession application of doctrine. 
Ephesians 4.22 says, in reference to your former manner of life, that is, your life as an unbeliever operating under the power of the sin nature, lay aside the old self. So this is a mandate now to take off, remove, this is the same word, apatithemi, lay aside, remove the old self, that which characterized your former manner of life as an unbeliever, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. So this also implies something that we're going to be dealing with, and that is that as an unbeliever, you had one nature. Now, by nature, we mean a capacity to sin. And that capacity to sin, we call the sin nature. But as a believer, you now have two natures. You have the capacity to sin which is called the old self, the old nature, the old man. And then you have the new man, which is all that you are in Jesus Christ based on the assets that God has given you. And sometimes this conflict between the old man and the new is characterized as the battle between the flesh and the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in our passage in Galatians chapter 5. So there is this continuous conflict where there are two natures in the believer, and the issue is that you have to make some decisions not to live according to the old man and to lay aside those activities. That calls for active, proactive choices on the part of the believer. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, it's the same idea, removing falsehood from the life. Speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Apatithemi means to lay aside, remove, take off falsehood. Colossians 3.8 But now you also put them all aside. It's the same word, apatithemi, meaning to remove, to take off. Put them all aside. Anger, then we have a list of various sins. The first three are mental attitude sins. Anger, wrath, malice. These are clearly representative. It's not an exhaustive list. It includes everything from bitterness to jealousy to envy to revenge motivation. I'm amazed at how many people give themselves over to mental attitude sins, and this becomes the dictate of their life and the prime motivator in their life. And over the course of time, if you do this, this will destroy your soul. It will destroy everything in your life and you will end up being miserable, and it is self-induced misery because you have made the choice to let your mind dwell on these mental attitude sins. Anger, wrath, and malice, the first three represent mental attitude sins, and then the second two represent sins of the tongue, which is, of course, our subject when we take, which we'll take up in James when we return after the conference. Slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that is a reference to the fact that we have a testimony in the angelic conflict and historically in terms of the Old Testament heroes, let us also lay aside apatithemi, remove, take off. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Every encumbrance refers to any distraction, not necessarily sin, But anything in your life, no matter how great it is, no matter how wonderful it might be, no matter how good it might be in some context, 
If there is something in your life that's a distraction from getting doctrine on a regular basis and is a distraction from your spiritual life, then we need to remove that. That is what is meant by every encumbrance. The imagery here is of a, of a race, uh, of a track runner, somebody who is down on the track running a race that he wants to remove anything and everything that hinders him from running the race as quickly as he can. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. So not only the distractions, which may or may not be good, they may be very enjoyable activities in life or hobbies, but yet, nevertheless, they distract us from the spiritual life. And secondly, sin, those favorite wonderful sins that we like to indulge in because that happens to be where our area of weakness really finds its, its forte, and we're very comfortable with those sins. We are to lay aside those because they easily entangle us, and then let us run with endurance, hupomenes, persistence, the race that is set before us, moving from the imagery of walking to the imagery of running. Then James 1.21 uses apotithemi again. Therefore, putting aside, removing, taking off that layer of clothes, the carnality, putting aside all, in the New American Standard, it translates it all, wilk, all filthiness, and, uh, the, and we saw in our study of James, it should be translated the wickedness that sin is. And in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, and that is not phase one salvation, but phase two salvation. So that is talking about the fact that in the course of the believer's life, he is again to be removing the, the acts and deeds of the sin nature from his life. Of course, this is not done through the power of the flesh. This is not done uh, as an act of morality, but it is done under the power of God the Holy Spirit and is not... I mean, remember, anything that an unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life. And unbelievers can be ethical, they can be moral, they can have great integrity... So that is not simply what the spiritual life is. The spiritual life, as we're going to see in Galatians 5, is uniquely the product of the Holy Spirit. It is a supernatural way of life, demanding a supernatural way of execution. And then finally, to understand apotithemi, 1 Peter 2.1 uses the word again, therefore, putting aside or removing all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now, the interesting thing is that that just as James 1 sets it up as a prerequisite, that this is a participle, there it's used as a participle of attendant circumstances, which gives you the prerequisite for fulfilling the mandate. The mandate in James 1.21 was to receive the Word, so you have to lay aside the sin in order to receive the Word. If you're operating in carnality under the power of the sin nature, then you're just going to be engaged in an academic exercise and there's not going to be any spiritual reception of truth. Peter is saying the same thing. Therefore, first put aside all the malice, guile, hypocrisy, and envy and slander. That begins with confession, but it means staying in fellowship afterwards and then as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word. So this is a prerequisite doesn't mean you have to reach sinless perfection or stop sinning for your life before you can take in the Word. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that, if, that at the time, though, that you're taking in the Word, you need to get in fellowship and stay in fellowship. So from all of this, we have seen that, that there are two absolute states that are defined in Scripture. One is light, 
and the other darkness. They are given other terms. The Holy Spirit is in one realm. The flesh is in another realm. Grace is in one realm. Law is in another realm. Faith is in one realm. Works is in another realm. You're in one or the other. It's not both. You can't be a little bit spiritual and a little bit carnal. You can't operate on a little bit of works and a little bit of grace. You're either operating on one or the other. Light and darkness are absolutes. You are in one or the other. And part of the issue here is fellowship. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul asks the question, What fellowship has light with darkness? And the implication is none. And the member of the Trinity specifically related to fellowship is God the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13.14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So then we have to ask the question, what effect does sin have on the Holy Spirit? If God is light and in Him no darkness can dwell and there can be no fellowship between darkness and light, then whenever we commit a sin, a sin of any category, no matter how great, no matter how small, it still violates the righteousness of God. Remember, God is plus R. He is absolute righteousness. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God must condemn. So when we commit any sin, any infraction, anything that violates the character of God, and by the way, that's the definition of sin. Some people, when they think of sin, they just think of the, the, the most heinous, awful acts they can imagine. But the Bible says that a sin is any act, thought, or thought that violates the revealed will of God or the character of God. So this includes mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, and various overt sins, and many things that people think aren't really quite so bad. But whenever we commit an act, and remember all it took in the Garden of Eden was to eat a piece of fruit, a fairly innocuous act, but it violated the mandate of God. So that caused the entire human race and creation to fall under the curse of sin. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. So at the cross... God the Father in justice poured out all the sins of humanity on Jesus Christ so that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sins and God's justice was satisfied and God's righteousness was satisfied which provided the basis for the salvation of the human race so that at the point of salvation when you exercise faith alone in Christ alone the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is then imputed or credited to the account of the believer. He is still experientially minus R, but he has positional righteousness. He is plus R. He is in the light, but he may not be living in the light. Now, as soon as he sins, he is going to violate God's righteousness. And then he is going to, that's going to have an impact on his fellowship with God, because God cannot have fellowship with darkness, and it's going to impact his relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's called quenching the Holy Spirit, in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, and the word quench means to suppress. In the immediate context, it was written in the time before the canon was completed, and they were warned not to suppress the Holy Spirit and not to treat prophecy lightly. Well, nobody's a prophet today, and nobody's prophesying today. What we have is the entire canon 
of Scripture, Bible doctrine. And so today that you begin to suppress the Holy Spirit whenever you reject or treat doctrine lightly. In other words, when you decide not to apply doctrine and to live in the power of the sin nature, you're suppressing the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is constantly going to be influencing us. Let's look at the parallel. You have a sin nature. Diagram it this way. This sin nature is not the source of sin. It is the source of temptation. So it presents the temptation to your volition. And you can choose positively to the, towards the sin nature and decide to yield to the temptation, or you can choose negatively to reject the sin nature. So the source of sin is your volition, whether or not you are going to yield to the temptation of the sin nature. On the other hand, the Holy Spirit, when you are under the filling of God, the Holy Spirit, He is going to be reminding you of the doctrine in your soul, assuming you have learned doctrine and there is doctrine stored in your soul then there is something for the Holy Spirit to work with, and He is going to be continually bringing this to our minds to, let it, to remind us of the doctrine we have, to encourage us to apply it. And once again, the issue is our volition. The Holy Spirit does not override our volition. He influences us in the same way that the sin nature tempts us. This is one of the problems that we had from an, left over from an older generation is that the filling of the Holy Spirit was sometimes referred to as the control of the Holy Spirit. And control is a bad word because what is He controlling? Is He controlling your volition? No. And so you had the right... And this had its roots in what was called the higher life movement, the victorious life movement, the Keswick movement that came out of the late 19th century. And it led to the concepts like let go and let God. And even today you'll still see that. I saw it on a bumper sticker just a couple of days ago. Let go and let God. And it's this idea that somehow if I become totally passive, that God is just going to work through me. And, of course, that never works, and people end up being very frustrated constantly trying to find some gimmick to get them into that emotional state where they feel like they're having a relationship with God. And that violates the whole concept. The issue is our volition, whether or not we are choosing to obey God and to apply doctrine or reject God and choose to yield to the testing of the sin nature. This is the concept of suppressing the Holy Spirit. When we say no to the Holy Spirit, then we are suppressing the Holy Spirit. And then Ephesians 5, excuse me, Ephesians 4.30 uses an anthropopathism to express how the Holy Spirit responds to this. It says we grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, an anthropopathism is a big word. It's a compound word from anthropos, meaning human or man, and pathos, which is the Greek for emotion. And what it means is to attribute to God a human emotion which he does not actually possess. Remember, God is not a man that he should lie or repent. God is different from man. So it's attributing to man a human emotion or attribute in order to understand the purposes, policies, and acts of God. The same thing happens in terms of physical attributes, and those are called anthropomorphisms, from uh, morphe meaning form. 
And that's when you talk about the hand of God or the eye of God goes to and fro continually throughout the earth. Or um, whenever it says in the Hebrew, when in English it translates it the wrath of God, but the, the uh, Jews had a very visual, physical way of expressing anger. Literally, it means your nose burns. So when it says in the Bible that God is wrathful, sometimes it's using the imagery his nose burns, but that doesn't mean that God has a physical nose. These are just anthropomorphisms. Anthropopathisms are the same kind of thing. And so we grieve the Holy Spirit, and this is to teach us that we have violated the perfect righteousness of God, and so the Holy Spirit, our relationship with God the Holy Spirit, has now been abrogated temporarily until that is dealt with. Now that sets us up for understanding 1 John 1 and the importance there. So turn in your Bibles to 1 John 1, and we're just going to uh, have a summary treatment of 1 John 1 and see how this relates to the whole doctrine of walking. Remember our subject. We are walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. Now, we saw in Ephesians chapter 5 that walking by means of the Holy Spirit, that part of this is walking in the light. That's the background for getting into 1 John 1. Walking in the light is tantamount to walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 5. We're not done with Ephesians 5, by the way. We'll, we'll get back there, I hope, before we're done this morning. Ephesians, uh, 1 John chapter 1. Just set things up at the beginning. What was from the beginning. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. John is emphasizing the fact that they are giving accurate personal testimony to the life and witness and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen, notice he repeats it. He wants you to get the point that this is an eyewitness account. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. So this is part of his theme in the epistle is fellowship. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Joy is part of our relationship and specifically our fellowship with God the Father. That is why when David sinned and then he confessed his sin in Psalm 51, he, after confessing his sin, he prayed to the Father, Restore to me the what? The joy of my salvation. Because when you're in carnality, you do not have the inner happiness of God. You do not have the joy of your salvation. And you can only have that when you are in fellowship and walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, And this is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. So this starts off with what we have already seen that God is perfect righteousness and cannot have fellowship with darkness at all. Now, Paul, uh, John is going to use three conditional clauses to represent different responses to God in the life of believers. 
This is a third-class condition which emphasizes potentiality. Maybe it is and maybe it isn't. And so we get down to verse, let me see, we're in verse 6. Third-class condition presents the condition as uncertain of fulfillment. In other words, you might say this or you might not say this. It treats this as though it is a likely uh, happening. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, so here's the claim. Somebody comes along and claims to have fellowship with God. They claim to be in fellowship with God. They claim to be walking with the Lord. And James, I mean, John says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, what is he saying here? Well, first of all, we have seen that you are positionally in the light. You become a son of light at the moment of salvation. This is the top circle. So walking in the light has to do with a step-by-step process and progress. It is different from a status, which is in the light. Now, there are those, there are quite a few who teach that walking in the light or walking in the darkness are terms for believer or unbeliever. But as we have seen, that is completely erroneous. Walking in the light and walking in the darkness are terms that relate to the bottom circle, the moment-by-moment life of the believer in terms of his spiritual life. If we say, on the one hand, that we have fellowship with him... And yet we walk, that is, we conduct activity out here, outside the bottom circle, in carnality, operating in the power of the flesh. We are in darkness. We're walking out here. We lie and we do not practice the truth. Now, the word for practicing the truth here is the Greek word poieo. P-O-I-E-O. And it means to do to make, to practice, to apply. And this is the word that we saw over and again in James chapter 1 from verse 21 down through James 2.26. And there we translated it apply because it had to do with the application of doctrine. Now the second word in this phrase, do not practice the truth, is the Greek word aletheia. A-L-E-T-H-E-I-A, meaning truth, absolute truth, not relative truth. And so this is comparable to doctrine. This is Paul's terminology, when there, I mean John's terminology. Whenever John is using this word, he is talking about absolute truth. We're going to see this more and more in our study of the Gospel of John. So walking in the truth is tantamount to walking in accordance with divine mandate, what we call Bible doctrine. So, in essence, what John is saying here is what James is saying over in James 1 and 2. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not apply doctrine. In other words, we're out of fellowship and we're outside the bottom circle. Contrast in verse 7, but if we walk in the light. So, there we have a clear indication that the believer can either walk in darkness or walk in the light. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son 
cleanses us from all sin. Two observations I want to make here. We've studied the doctrine of the blood, so we know, number one, that blood is a, an analogy or metaphor for the spiritual death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Remember, when God told Adam, when, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die, they did not die physically. They died spiritually. Now, when Jesus died on the cross as our substitute, it has to be a death in kind. So, if the penalty... Let's make a distinction here. There are, we have penalty one and penalty two. Maybe we'll use some shorthand and just call this P1 and P2. Penalty number one for, the, for sin is spiritual death, eternal separation from God the Father. Separation from God the Father in time that if it's not dealt with by salvation, response to the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, then it ends up in eternal condemnation. P2 has to do with the consequences in time. The consequences in time. This comes under the category of whatsoever a man sows, this he will also reap. It is the negative consequences in time that are the result of sin. So that when Adam and Eve sinned, they died spiritually, P1, but everything in life was cursed, and they lived in a fallen environment from that point on, suffering the curse of sin, and that was P2. Okay, two different realms. Now, this is important to understand. If you don't understand this, you'll get lost in 1 John 1. As a result of this... God is going to deal with this in two different ways. The spiritual death on the cross of Jesus Christ is a judicial death. God judged him judicially on the cross by imputing to him our sins. Jesus Christ remained sinless. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. Jesus Christ never sinned. He never became a sinner. He always maintained his perfect righteousness on the cross but our sins were imputed to Him on the cross so that they're, they're reckoned to Him. They're not His experientially, but they are His judicially. Now, the word that is used by theologians to describe this is not only the term judicial, but forensic. Now, forensic has to do with that study of things that has to do with the judiciary or criminality. So it is called a forensic punishment. Down here we have experiential punishment. I want to draw this distinction. We have two kinds of punishment going on here. We have a judicial forensic punishment at the cross, which dealt with spiritual death, and then we have experiential consequences or penalties in time. Now, when John says, if we walk in the light... As he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And there we have a present active indicative of the verb katharizo, K-A-T-H-A-R-I-Z-O, which means to purify 
or to cleanse. It's the word that is used uh, in the Septuagint to relate to all the cleansing that took place in the temple before a person, a priest, could go into the presence of God. Now, because this is in the present tense, some people will come along and say that this is the standard operating procedure here, and if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the t- then you will always be cleansed from sin, and so you don't ever have to do anything about it. You, whenever you sin, just realize and have faith that God's going to cleanse you, and the blood of Christ cleanses you continuously, and you don't have to do anything else. In other words, for those of you who haven't caught the point, you would never have to confess your sins. That's what they're saying. But what about 1 John 1, 9? That's two verses later. So John would be contradicting himself if he meant by 1, 7 that you don't have to confess your sins anymore. Why would he come around in two verses later and say that you need to confess your sins? Well, what we realize here is that 1 John 1, 7 is dealing with P1 consequences. It's dealing with spiritual death consequences. This means that when you enter into the top circle and you are in a positional reality with Jesus Christ, that's an eternal relationship and you can never lose it. Paul said, I am persuaded that neither height nor depth nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor life nor death nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have an eternal relationship with Christ that cannot be broken, yet we sin. Five seconds after you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you look across the congregation and you see somebody that insulted you and you're immediately angry again. And you sin. Do you die spiritually? No, you don't die spiritually. Why? Because P1 has been taken care of on the cross. Penalty one, spiritual death. You do not die spiritually again. Jesus Christ's blood continually cleanses you so that that forensic application of the blood of Christ, meaning His spiritual substitutionary death on the cross, continually cleanses you from the moment of faith alone in Christ alone until you're absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord and minus the sin nature. That's what that's referring to. Now, let's go on. 1 John 1.7 is talking about the continual effect of the death of Christ in terms of, the, of never having to deal with P1 consequences of spiritual death ever again. That will not happen to you as a believer. You cannot lose your salvation. Once saved, always saved. Verse 8, if we say, that is, maybe we will, maybe we, we will not, but if we say that we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves. In other words, there's no such thing as perfection in the spiritual life. Every believer is going to sin and going to continue to sin to some degree or another. If you are saying that you have no sin, you're operating on arrogance and self-deception. And the truth, that is, Bible doctrine is not in you. You are not operating on doctrine. You are once again operating outside that bottom circle. Truth is not in you. You are over here in carnality denying the fact that you are a sinner. And in contrast, if we confess, that is, homo legeo, which means to admit or to acknowledge your sins. That doesn't mean to feel sorry for your sins. It's a legal term. When you go into court, it doesn't matter how you feel about whether or not you should have gotten that ticket or whether or not you killed that person. It doesn't matter whether you regret it or whether you're glad you did it and you would kill them again if you had the opportunity. 
when you stand before the, the, the bar of justice and the judge says guilty or not guilty, and you say guilty, whether you're glad or sad, you've made the same statement. Now, if you're... Your attitude may affect your penalty, it may affect punishment, it may affect a number of other things in the spiritual life. If you're glad about it, a millisecond later you're probably rehearsing it with joy in your mind again, so you haven't really gotten into fellowship for very long, and it hasn't done you much good. But the idea of confession is not that you have to uh, feel guilty about it, feel sorry for it, that you have to impress God with how you feel about it. That's, uh, that's nothing more than works. It simply means to admit or acknowledge your sins, and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, this means that there's two categories of forgiveness. One category of forgiveness deals with what happens here at the cross and is judicial or forensic forgiveness that is ours continuously because we're in the top circle. We constantly have that, and we can never lose it. But then there is experiential forgiveness. This is related to phase two. And this is related to the use of 1 John 1, 9 and is related to P2 consequences. Remember, P2 consequences are those consequences, whether they're natural consequences, cause and effect consequences, or divine discipline consequences that are ours in time as a result of the sin we commit. The believer cannot sin with impunity. Just because you're saved doesn't mean there are no consequences in time. If you go out and you commit murder, then you should be found guilty in a court of law and you should be sentenced to, to the gas chamber, electric chair, or death by injection, or whatever the current mode is, or I prefer hanging in the public square so that everybody can see how horrible it is. But that is what the Bible teaches. Capital punishment is part of the Noahic covenant. And as long as you see a rainbow in the sky after it rains, then the mandate that, man by, that when man sheds man's blood, man by man's hand should, man's blood should be shed, that's still in effect. In other words, capital punishment goes when the rainbow goes. But until then, we're still to carry out capital punishment. And God in His omniscience did indeed know that men were fallible and men would make mistakes in the judicial procedure and that human beings would imprison and find guilty and execute innocent people. But that did not stop God from mandating that we were to carry out the procedure. So the people who are just a little too soft and a little too scared that somebody just might make a mistake have absolutely no ground to stand on without committing blasphemy. Because if they think that, oh, this is too hard, God wouldn't do that, then they are indeed forcing God into their concept of God, and that is blasphemy. The Scriptures say that we have to have capital punishment. So even if you're a believer, you commit murder, you're subject to all the consequences of that sin. But ten seconds after you commit that murder, you can exercise 1 John 1, 9, and you are forgiven... And in terms of spiritual consequences, now you're going to have a certain amount of suffering, but that suffering is going to be converted into suffering for blessing instead of suffering for discipline. See, this is what happened with David. When David sinned with Bathsheba, you have adultery, you have the cover-up, you have all kinds of mental attitude, sins of arrogance, you have the conspiracy to get uh, Uriah the Hittite murdered, all of this whole complex of sins that were, were part of that. Well, even though God commuted the death penalty because 
David committed a couple of sins there that were punishable by death under the Mosaic Law. God intervened, not a human judge. God intervened and said, okay, we won't apply it this time. It was God's law, so he had the right to do that. God said, we're, not, we're going to commute the sentence, but David, you're going to pay for it fourfold. And David paid for it for the rest of his life. He went through horrible events in his family. The child that was the uh, product of the adulterous relationship died. Uh, one of his sons committed incest with one of his daughters. And then another son, in order to uh, execute vengeance for that, killed the incestuous brother. And then later on, Absalom led a rebellion. His favorite son led a rebellion against David. And in the process, Absalom was killed and David's favorite son died and he went through that. So David didn't get off scot-free, but because he confessed his sin in Psalm 51 and he was back in fellowship, that suffering for discipline was converted into suffering for blessing. He was able to handle all of that discipline uh, on the basis of doctrine and the faith rest drill so he could convert it into blessing and advance spiritually on the basis of that. So even though you still have consequences, you are forgiven spiritually and that is converted to uh, uh, discipline for blessing or suffering for blessing. Now, don't confuse these two. Penalty one and penalty two, uh, forgiveness one and forgiveness two. See, forgiveness one has to do with verse seven. But forgiveness, too, is experiential forgiveness on a day-to-day basis in terms of our spiritual walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this has to happen because we are supposed to walk in the light, and when we walk in the darkness, something has to take place in order to transfer us back from that experiential walking in darkness back to the experience of walking in the light. And that is done through 1 John 1.9. Now, let's go back to our passage in Ephesians chapter 5 and start tying some of these things together. Ephesians 5. Now, we saw last time that there are various different absolute states mentioned here. We have the command, the mandate back in 5a to walk in darkness. Verse 11 says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Now, I skipped an important verse. Verse 9 gives the consequences of walking in the light. The consequences of the results is production. The fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. In other words, the goal of all this is production of character. It's transformation of character. It is designed to produce in us the character of Jesus Christ. That is the end result. The fruit of the light is comparable to the fruit of the Holy Spirit, as we will see in this parallel between Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5. Then we see a reminder of rebound or confession in verse 14, awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, that is temporal death or carnality. Therefore, verse 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. The unwise is the fool who's in carnality. The wise is the believer operating on doctrine, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Then in verse, seven, uh, verse 17, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's either one or the other. It's not a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. Culminating in verse 18, 
Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So here we see that once we see that there's these two states, light and darkness. Over here we have wisdom. Over here we have foolishness. Here we have walking by means of the Spirit. Over here we have the works of the flesh. Here we have grace. Over here we have law. Here we have walking by means of faith. Over here we have works. Now we have a new concept. A new concept called filling. The filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, what exactly is this? And how do we understand this? The term in the, in the Greek uses, the, again, this instrumental dative of means. We are to be filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. Now, the verb here is plerao, P-L-E-R-O-O, and it means to fill up a deficiency. Well, what is that deficiency? The deficiency is the vacuum in our soul caused by a lack of doctrine. Now, what are we filled with? See, this phrase, filled with the Spirit, is somewhat ambiguous. Does that mean that, that the Spirit Himself fills us up, that He's the content of the filling? Well, that would have to be expressed in the Greek with a genitive, because genitive expresses content. The dative expresses means. So it is the Holy Spirit who is the dynamic element that fills us with something. Now, we're going to have to take a little more time on this. I'm just going to hit the high point right now. We're filled with the Spirit. What We're filled, and this should more accurately be translated, filled by means of the Spirit. The content of the filling is doctrine. This is found in Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. So the Holy Spirit is the means, the content is doctrine, and the result is going to be given by a descriptive genitive using the Greek adjective, plerais, P-L-E-R-E-S. You can see that there is a similarity in the root, comes from the same root as plerao. And there's another Greek word that comes in here, that is the Greek verb, pimplemi, P-I-M-P-L-E-M-I. This word also has to do with being filled. And they're translated, pimplemi and plerao are translated the same way in the English. Yet there are two different words in the Greek. And they refer to two different kinds of filling. And failure to recognize that has led to some real problems and confusion at different points. And so we're going to have to come back next time in two weeks and we will finish this aspect of our study of walking by the Spirit by understanding what it means to be filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the time we've had this morning to look at Your Word and to continue to 
to grapple with what it means to walk by means of your Holy Spirit, whom you have given to us as a unique sign of this age and the unique uh, empowerment of the spiritual life. And Father, help us to understand these concepts and how they relate to our lives so that we can indeed continue to advance by means of God the Holy Spirit toward spiritual maturity that you might be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.